Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm very excited about the guests that we have today because we're going to be talking about trying and trying and trying, you know, to make it happen when you have an idea. And uh, obviously about not giving up and about being rejected for three years back to back by VCs until he was able to make it happen. And now he's in a rocket ship. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex De Vigan. Welcome to the show. Hi, hello, mate. So originally, you know, obviously your parents, you know, from the U.S., also from France, but you were, you know, born and, and raised there in France. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I was born in France, you know, 85. Life was great. My father was an entrepreneur. My mother was American. Grew up like, in any like any kid in, in France, I went to high school, then went to law and business school, and then and then I started my journey as a merger and acquisition attorney when I exited business school. And 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 in your case, uh, obviously having your father being an entrepreneur, being able to experience indirectly the journey, I'm sure that uh, that was quite inspiring from you. So so how was that for you, like experiencing your dad going through the ups and downs of of building a company? Well, you know, actually, this is why I wanted to be a lawyer. It's uh, just because he was, he, uh, my, my father was a, a serial entrepreneur and, and he was very successful sometimes and some other times it didn't work. And when it didn't work, you know, they needed lawyers. So it was kind of a hectic journey, but I, I think I was, um, I got the virus with him, uh, although I've experienced very, very young, the up and down. And in your case, I mean, you did, you know, management and business. So, I mean, and, and then obviously law. In fact, you did the LLM program in the U.S. Uh, so so very familiar with that. So so I guess, you know, how did that mix come together of of law and business? I mean, why that combination? I think that that as seeing my father an entrepreneur and also understanding that you know him and when an entrepreneur has difficulties or or legal issues that the lawyers at the time were. Not understanding anything about business, I felt that there was an, a, a gap to be filled in in being a lawyer that understand business. And this is why I started doing law and, and business uh, school, and then eventually became a lawyer, and then eventually went from becoming a lawyer to becoming an entrepreneur. 
Now, you know, it's, it's very interesting, your journey, because it's exactly like mine. You know, I was a lawyer, LLM, you know, all of that stuff, and then entrepreneur. So, I mean, I, I, I love it here, what, what you're sharing now. You know, I'm sure that for you, you know, going into law and, and doing M&A, you know, now you get the experience to the deal-making side of things, and perhaps you get the exposure to the business side to, to see how things work. I mean, at what point do you realize, hey, you know, maybe pushing paper here behind the desk is, is not for me? Yeah, I think I think very quickly, you know, I, I practiced for like four years, but I was very frustrated of not making the decision about making uh, being the guy in the room, you know, giving advice. But, you know, first of all, not being accountable for, for the for for operating in, in the good or bad ways, not for the success, but also not, you know, I wasn't responsible with anything if things went wrong. And I, so I got kind of frustrated about that. And, and I also felt that as an attorney, for me, I didn't have any enough impact. So this is why I said, you know, one day I, I just quit and said, you know, I, I need, I need to put my hands in, in the, in the wheels and operating. And this is when I decided to start my first business in, in 2015, 2016. And, and we'll get into that, but I, I wanted to ask you too, I mean, obviously having that access to the M&A side, I mean, you get to experience to the full cycle of a business, right? Because you know, perhaps I'm not sure if that was the case or not of, of being involved on the capital raising side, but at least on the M&A side, you get to see how reaching the finish line looks like. And, and obviously that's like the holy grail is what, you know, most entrepreneurs, you know, wish for like one day, you know, like to, to achieve a really big exit, no, a, a good outcome for all the stakeholders. So what were some of the lessons that you learned from being involved on all those transactions over the course of four years? I think it's a very good, um, very good question. The, the transaction on which I was involved at the time were so big that you know it was like basically numbers. You know, working for KKR, Apple, all the big, big enormous funds. Uh, the lesson is that everything is very fragile, and that nothing is won until the finish line, as you said. And that that although you know everything is going well, you can, a deal can can you know go sideways in, in a minute. So I think that. I think it, it taught me a lot of humility and, and, you know, nothing is granted even when you're, even if you have signed the deal and it's not closed. So I think this was my, my took, my take on, on that. So, so then walk us through that transition from being a lawyer to being an entrepreneur, because that transition is, is pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult because, you know, when, 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 when you're a lawyer, you know, you have everything, you have your assistant, you have this, this and that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're like hitting the ground running, figuring things out. Uh, it sounds like in your case, you know, there was like a lot of trial and error, you know, a lot of ideation, you know, to really come up <laughs> with what ended up being your baby now that you're in, in this rocket ship. But it took some time and also it took some effort and failure. So walk us through that. Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, we always hear about, you know, the rocket ships and, and all everything is supposed to be. And maybe it's the case for others, not for me, but, you know, it was clear from the beginning and it, well, it wasn't at all for me. Uh, it was it was very hard. And, and I, I even think that if someone had told me when I, I quit did my job that it would have been so hard, I, I don't know if I would have done it because it, it's just it's a story of, of, of pain. Uh, but and then at the end, success. But it, it's, it's very tough. So, uh, yeah, I, I started I quit my job and I, I created a real estate marketplace uh, back uh, in 2016. My idea was to create, you know, a Zillow and a Trulia um, uh, in Europe. And this was hard. I mean, starting from with nothing, again, no support, no money, no help, no not, not knowing where you're going, no tracks to follow. And and very soon I realized that it wasn't the right 
I'm in the right. If I wanted to make a difference, I needed to to get better imagery. So this was the first pivot. You know, I pivoted from a real estate marketplace to no. In fact, what if I want to make a real business, I need to create better imagery. And very quickly, I just shut down the first company to create a whole company that because I saw a bigger opportunity, company dedicated to created digital imagery for real estate. So this was the first of many, many trials and errors before finding, you know, the good product market fit, but it took it took five years. Wow. I mean, five years is a lot of years. I mean, it's a lot of years in the desert. So how did you manage to... Uh... Because, I mean, when you're dealing with that trial and error and not figuring it out, you know, it's like you're in, I find that product market fit is like being in a room that is completely dark. And then you're like figuring out where the hell is the switch so that you can open up the door and, and get out of the room kind of thing. It's just very frustrating. So uh, how, how do you go through that process for so long where I'm sure that you're ahead, you know, you are telling all types of white ifs to yourself to really be able to quiet those voices and keep and keep and keep moving forward? I think it's a very difficult balance and, and I, I think it's more an art than a science. The first thing is, is I think you need to be relentless. I love the saying from an entrepreneur is you only lose when you quit. And, and first of all, it's not quitting. It's just iterating and, and loving after the fact, the, the failure, because you only will find the solution because like Thomas Edison, you found a thousand, you failed a thousand, a thousand times. So first of all, it's, it's being relentless, being very humble. I think it is very important to try and try and try and try. And at the end of the day, I think what the very difficult balance is between, you know, having a vision and saying, okay, this is what I really want to do. And this vision will change, but keeping like this North star and also being, you know, agile in, in order to pivot. And, and, and this is the hard balance between not pivoting all the time, but also being enough, hearing enough the, the, the signals of the market, of the competition, of the customers, of the partners, of the funds, the VCs to, to, to you, know, you know, steer the ship in the right direction to finally, after several iterations, find, you know, the, the, the real thing that you will be building upon for the next few years. So at what point do you realize, hey, I think that uh, we got it? Uh, well, man, it's, it's, it's a long journey and maybe we still don't have it yet. I mean, maybe <laughs> not, you know, so, so no, I, I think that again, everybody says that, but I think it's very important. The idea has no value. It's really the execution of how do you fit that idea in a real market? So, I mean, 2016 launched real estate, you know, uh, pivoted to 2017 launched, you know, the, 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 what is today infinite, which is a solution at the time dedicated to creating better imagery for real estate in order to attract more traffic. You know, I think that the, what we've been pretty good at, although it was hard is always, you know, leveraging what we've built and what we've learned into bigger opportunities. And what we, after 2017, we say, okay, real estate is cool. It's scaling, but the market is too small. We can do something bigger and say, okay, what about adapting that technology for real estate for? retailers what about you know instead of decorating apartment what about you know using the technology to create visual for furniture makers furniture retailers this is 2018 and 2018 it, it scales bigger contract but it's still the business model is not sustainable because it's like more transactional so 2019 say hey what about you know bringing a platform and technology to that and then and then so we leverage what we do we have a bigger vision we invest more so each time if you invest more you raise more money you invest more and then 2019 it scales and then we're very happy we signed like major retailers in europe and it's boom and then 2020 COVID, <laughs> everything is shuts down. What what we've built, you know, no more innovation budget for our customers. Everything stops. So we say, okay, how can we, you know, leverage what we've built and what we've learned to actually solve a pain 
which is today's pain. And the pain was at the time that the retailers couldn't ship any products, couldn't shoot anything. So we pivoted the technology, which was more shopper facing to something more, you know, uh, customer facing, meaning merchandiser, operator facing. And, and when everybody stopped investing in 2020, because we, we, betted the company and invested every single dollars we had in, in platforming that SaaS solution that we launched in January 2021, which is when it, it took off. Now, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Infinite? How do you guys make money? So today, the, the idea is we, 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 have, we are... Uh, no, so now it seems obvious, but we <laughs> took five years to 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 come up to 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 materialize that correctly. It's a SaaS merchandising platform. Our mission is to empower the retailers of the world to create basically unlimited product visuals uh, to enhance, improve their online experience. Uh, for their shoppers in order to increase sales. And the way we make money is you pay a price per SKU per year and you get to create unlimited product visuals. So it's you should see us as the Canva of merchandising. And this is what we do. And how much capital have you guys raised today, Alex? Uh, around 130 million now. Uh, so uh, and it, it, it wasn't linear at all. We, we the first few years we were rejected by all the VCs. So we it was like you know business angels, family offices. Never you know I mean maybe you know, every day I had meeting to raise funds for for three years, and then at some point when when it took off, then then we were able to explain much clearer the, the opportunity after which we were going, uh, had a go-to-market motion, had a sustainable, I mean, more sustainable business model. And this is when we raised a, a, a $50 million Series A in, in 2021 and then a $100 million Series B in, in, uh, in 2022. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself, you need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dealmakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in your guys' case, I know that on on one of the first day, early rounds, on the first round, I believe, you know, it kind of like things broke down and and you almost quit. So, uh, so why what happened with that race that you had going on, and and what were the turnaround of events? Yeah, this is a painful memory, but also I think this is what explains what we are today. Uh, one of in, in the first rounds. Uh, I had an investor committing on, uh, on investing money in, in three trenches. And, uh, and so he unlocks the first trench, but, you know, and then he, he, he's late on the second trench, but I'm, I've already invested the second and the third trench. And, and at the end of the day, he, he, he broke uh, his engagement of investing, which he couldn't. So legally I had, as a lawyer, I, I had bundled it perfectly, but as an entrepreneur, you know, legal issue, legal, you know, solutions have no impact in the real business. So I, I, I found myself without any money and, and, you know, no, no dollars to, to pay salary with the employees, nothing. We had, we had to stop. And so, so basically everything was, you know, going in the right direction. And at some point we didn't have any money, nothing was working. And, and so at that time, I, I had an advisor, which I think is very important for every entrepreneur. It's such a lonely, lonely path that having, you know, uh, advisors, mentors around you that you ask for. First of all, it's, it's kind of easy to get because entrepreneurs are, you know, we're all alike some, in some ways. We're, so we help, like to help each other. So I had one mentor and I, and I basically called him and like was like, you know, completely, you know, I don't know how you say, but not crying, but almost saying, hey, everything is over. Uh, you know, the, the, the fundraiser, the broker, the deal. And, and he said, you know, oh, okay, I, I understand. Um, come to my house tomorrow morning. I will help. And for me, what, what it meant is he was going to write me a check. And so I'm, I'm, you know, taking my, my train and it's 6 a.m. in the morning. I arrive at his home and he sees me and he says, okay, so tell me your story. And I, and I complain about the story and I, and I say, hey, this is what happened. It's unfair, blah, blah, blah. And this is what I need. He says, he looks at me and he says, hey, you, no one forced you to become an entrepreneur. I say, no. And he said, okay. So like every entrepreneur, it's hard. And, but either you continue and you don't complain or you quit, but you're not coming and complaining. And he, and he walks me out of his home. And that, that moment, I was saying, I'm not going to quit, whatever. I, I, I can't quit. So it was a big lesson for me of not quitting. And, and from that on, I, 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 I find 15K, 20K, 30K, and then, and then I, I could put the machine back again on, on, on the track. But this was a very big lesson for me at a turning point in my entrepreneurial life. And on the financing side, I mean, you guys are there in France, but 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 you've raised money also from U.S. investors. So how is it, you know, raising money from investors in Europe versus raising money from investors in the U.S.? It's a tough question. We had more success in the U.S., I mean, from the VC fund. Uh, from my understanding, and again, it's only my opinion, but I think that 
Um, so first of all, now we've become a U.S. company um, and we were able to raise U.S. funds because we had U.S. customers. And I think something very important to keep in mind, if you want to raise funds, it's not so true anymore, but if you want to raise funds from the U.S., you need to have U.S. activity. Now, unless you have a U.S. fund coming to Europe to fund you, which is different. But if you want to, if you want to go to the U.S. and talk to U.S. VCs, you need to have U.S. customers. And for, for us, it was easier because I think that the, the U.S. VCs are more risk takers uh, into bigger opportunities than, than what I found at the time. But, you know, it's you know, maybe re restating the fact after the war. But uh, for us, this is how we felt, that as long as we understood what was needed to, to raise in the U.S., which was having U.S. customers, and that we were able to explain clearly a very big opportunity and what we were doing and how we were doing it, it was easier for something that is very disruptive to raise in the U.S. than it was to raise in Europe for us. Got it. Now, in terms of the of the operation, I mean, how, how big is the company today? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, sure. We're 150 people, uh, mainly, uh, well, in Europe and the U.S. In Europe, we are having the R&D and, and part of the operations while we have shifted every customer-facing part of the company in the U.S., uh, sales, marketing, even product uh, customer-facing. Yeah. And we have like maybe around 60% of our revenues in the U.S. for now. And how, how about culture? Because when you have all these different offices, you know, obviously every office has their own culture, even though they get influence from the main culture of HQ and the founder mainly or the management team. You know, obviously the, the first is the founder, you know, and then, you know, it's everything else. But I guess how does that culture shift from one office to the other? Uh, this is very. Uh, this is a very uh, you know complex question, and I don't think we have the right solution today. And I think that, that, that there are three. I mean, two different you know sides to that. First of all, yes, you know, having multicultural you know pieces of an organization is hard. We don't communicate the same way in France, in the US, in the UK. We have an Asian team, also an APEC team, team. So this is hard. And also, I think the remote world makes it even more difficult uh, unless you were remote, you know, uh, native, which we were not. We were we had offices in France, and so. And so I think basically uh, the, the culture part is how do you hire the, the leaders in different organizations that live and breed the same values. And for us, it's, it's you know, being relentless, being humble, uh, being very competitive. We're not here to be second and also being have a lot of empathy for your colleagues. I think this is what we want to we want to share. And as long as we we've been successful in sharing the culture because we found people that share that at the management level that we're able to hire people that share that also. And then, and then after all, you know, of course, um, reunions are important uh, in person, if possible. We try to do that once a year. Uh, otherwise, it's like, how can you have, you know, a, yeah, a reunion is even virtual, uh, at least on a monthly basis. And obviously, the um, the mindset, too, in the U.S. is different. I, I guess in the, and, and I find that in Europe, you know, things are changing. You know, now the whole startup thing is 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 becoming more sexy than ever before. You know, you were only cool if you were a lawyer or you were, you know, in banking or or a consultant. But I think that now that mindset is changing. But I'm sure that you've seen the difference when it comes to recruiting top talent, you know, in 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 the US, you know, maybe it's a little bit easier or people are a little bit more open minded versus maybe in Europe where you're competing against the big corporations and people that are a little bit more risk averse. Did you find that too or no? 
Um, I think that was true a few years ago. I think that now with their, their what they call the scale up, you know, uh, f- f- you know, all, all, all the, the the glamour around the scale ups uh, that we have in Europe, people are are more and more willing to quit corporate jobs to get the adventure of of, of a scale. Not so much of a startup when it's crappy, and but a, a startup that has scale to a certain point is get, getting very sexy. So, my yes. For, for me, first of all, I think it's in the U.S. I think people are more um, pro-risk to get earlier in startups, although it's very difficult when you're not a U.S.-born company to hire in the U.S. Since I think it's very important to acknowledge and then you need to leverage your, your VC, the fundraising, some PR, some because it's hard. They don't trust you. And now I think that in France, it's very hard to hire top talents at a small scale startup and it gets easier when you scale. The more you scale, the more it gets and, and and one thing that comes to mind here is, you know, imagine, you know, you were to go to sleep tonight, Alex, and you wake up in a world, you know, where the vision of infinite is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, well, you know, I dream of that every night, <laughs> even when, I, when I'm walking <laughs> in the street. So, uh, well, the, the vision for us is, is very simple. We believe that we're uh, we're uh, building a new category in the, uh, in the marketing the MarTech, um, you know, space, uh, which is what we call e-merchandising. So the, the ability to create visual experience, product visual experiences. And, and we, I believe that this is the next revolution in e-commerce before virtual commerce, before the metaverse. And that, you know, within the next few years, what we do today, which is very disruptive for our customer will be obvious. The need to create unlimited product experience. They need to A-B test visual. They need to customize visual to a shopper will be, uh, will be obvious. And I know in my wildest dream, I believe that we'll become the sales force of this, of this uh, e-merchandising world. Um, so th- this is, this is what I dream at night and during the day. And, and I guess, you know, something that comes to mind, I mean, you have obviously all these people now in, 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 in these different offices. So when you have this vision, I mean, how do you how do you get people to rally up so that because I find that having everyone excited about the future that they're living into is is critical. So how do you go about conveying that vision so that people are, you know, very much aligned and, and pushing in the right direction with that excitement? Yeah, I think that, you know, this is a very hard uh, topic, but for us, it might be a little easier than in some, any, uh, some other industries because what we do is visual. So every, everyone relates to the, the need when they shop. So everyone shop online and everyone is, is expects a certain experience, expects would like to have more visual, would like to have more customization, would like to have to, to, because it's a single touch point within the product and the consumer. So. You know, rallying people with the idea that tomorrow shoppers will will need more uh, visual exposure to the product, and that in order to do that, classic solution doesn't work. You need technology, and that the technology that will enable to do that is a SaaS merchant, a merchandising platform is not easy, but it people can relate that pretty easily. Relate to that pretty easily. And 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 also, I wanted to ask you: imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that time that where you were still a lawyer, you know, doing M&A type of uh, work. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you have the opportunity of sitting down with that younger Alex and giving that younger Alex, you know, a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It would be don't quit. Uh, don't quit. 
It's just that, you know, although all of this, there is, you know, a lot of culture around, you know, it's easy. Uh, it's, uh, you know, success can, can come in one day. Uh, an idea can make it all right. It's, it's just not true. So I, I, I would, I, my advice would be, you know, pursue your dream, but, but be agile and, and don't quit. And success did not come easy. It's no pain, no gain. And whether you read the, the, all the biographies are the great entrepreneurs, at least for me, you know, from Sam Walton of Walmart, Ray Kroc, uh, Jeff Schultz. I mean, I'll, every, for me, at least, maybe it's because I only read the one I relate to, but everything is hard. Everything takes time. Everything takes, you know, to be relentless, to learn, and it's step after step. So this is, yeah, it's not easy. If you want easy, don't do it. But if you want, if you want a great adventure and, and a potential great outcome, you should do it. For me, it's like surfing, you know, surfing is when you surf, I'm not a good surfer, but it's, you, you crawl and swim for like 20, 20 minutes to get one minute of maybe on the board where you feel like God. And I think maybe it's a good metaphor <laughs> of entrepreneurship for me. I love it. I love it. So Alex, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I think LinkedIn is great. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn, I always answers to to people, especially for for people you know in, in looking to for advice or you know exchange. I've been I've been there. <laughs> I'm still you know you always solve smaller than someone else, so I'm I'm doing that for other entrepreneurs. I relate. I, I like to have advice from. So please, please do reach out. Amazing. Well, hey Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor on my end. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.